Welcome to the channel of Anna Purdue. Look for the link below the podcast and make sure to upload the podcast so you can multitask while hearing the message. And you can also look for the link and um, once you open it up, you can scroll over and select your favorite platform, Apple, Spotify, or Google, and just look for the channel Anna Purdue. A huge shout out to Neil and Lisa H, Nancy S, Angela E, Jolie R, Leonard L, and Jody F for your donations to the channel. And if you're able and interested in helping this channel, you can do so by clicking the donation link found on my website at annapurdue.com. Today's reading is taken from a post found at lookingglassnews.org, and I think you will find it most fascinating. So, what could be wrong with putting an experienced and acclaimed information technology data management expert in charge of upgrading and centralizing all our records nationally in order to fight crime and protect us against terrorism? Even if she is a foreign-born and raised globalist sympathizing UN patsy married to a French intellectual and living in France with ties to Latin America? I mean, what's wrong with that? Hang on, dear listeners, you're about to be amazed, and I hope angered and motivated enough to take action. The story starts here. Actually, it doesn't start here. It starts much earlier, but this recent article will provide our point of departure. The FBI has built a database with more than 659 million records, including terrorist watch lists, intelligence cables, and financial transactions called from more than 50 FBI and other government agency sources. The system is one of the most powerful data analyst tools available to law enforcement and counterterrorism agents, FBI officials said recently. The FBI demonstrated the database to reporters in part to address criticism that its technology was failing and outdated as far back as the fifth anniversary of the September 11, 2001. Privacy advocates said the investigative data warehouse launched in January of 2004 raised concerns about how long the government stores such information and about the right of citizens to know what records are kept and correct information that is wrong. The data warehouse is an effort to connect the dots that the FBI was accused of missing in the months before the 2001 attacks, bureau officials said. About a quarter of the information comes from the FBI's records and criminal case files. The rest, including suspicious financial activity reports, no-fly list, and lost and stolen passport data, comes from the Treasury, State, and Homeland Security Departments, and the Federal Bureau of Prisons. That's where the real knowledge comes from, sharing information said Gervais Grigg, and then he was the then acting director of the FBI's Foreign Terrorist Tracking Task Force and current global public sector chief technology officer for Channelists, who helped develop the system. In a demonstration, Grigg sat at a computer and typed in the name Mohammed Atta, one of the 19 hijackers in 2001. The system can handle variants of names and up to 29 variants on birth dates. He typed flight training in the query box and pulled up 250 articles relating to Atta. The system, designed by Chiliad Inc., 
of Amherst, Massachusetts can be programmed to send alerts to agents on new information, Griggs said. Names, social security numbers, and driver's license details can be linked and cross-matched across hundreds of millions of records. Griggs said that before 2002, it would take 32,222 hours to run 1,000 names and birth dates across 50 databases. Now, agents can make such a search in 30 minutes or less, he said. And that was in 2004. The 13,000-plus agents and analysts who use the system make an average 1 million queries a month, Griggs said. The system does not reach into the databases themselves, but mines copies that are updated regularly, he said. Irrelevant information can be purged or restricted, and incorrect information is corrected, he said. Willie T. Hulan, the assistant director of the FBI's National Security Branch at that time, said that generally information is not removed from the system unless there is cause for removal. Every data source is reviewed by security, legal and technology staff members, and a privacy impact statement is created, Griggs said. The FBI conducts in-house auditing so that each query can be tracked, he said. David Sobel, senior counsel of the Electronic Frontier Foundation, said the Federal Register has no record of the creation of such a system, a basic requirement of the Privacy Act. He also said the FBI's use of an internal privacy assessment undercuts the intent of the privacy law. Sobel said he learned under a Freedom of Information Act disclosure recently that the system includes 250 million airline passenger records stored permanently. It appears to be the largest collection of personal data ever amassed by the federal government, he said. When they developed the capability to cross-reference and data mine all these previously separate sources of information, there are significant new privacy issues that need to be publicly debated. Michael Moorhart, former chief of the FBI's Terrorist Financing Operations Section, has testified to Congress about some aspects of the system. He said that Treasury Department documents included in the database have helped counterterrorism investigations significantly. With $3 million in angel funding from family and friends, a company named Chiliad jumped from the shadows by announcing a $24.5 million investment from Hewlett Packard Company. Chiliad. Now there's an interesting word. It's Latin meaning a thousand, the aggregate of a thousand things. The funding comes in a combination of debt and equity financing. The two companies also formed a strategic alliance in which Chiliad uses Hewlett-Packard servers, storage, consulting, and software, while Hewlett-Packard will explore how to use the startup search technology in its products, portals, and e-commerce sites. The most impressive thing about Chiliad is the experience of its managers. Co-founder and chairman Christine Maxwell created Magellan, the Internet's original reference directory and search engine. 
Christine Maxwell is a daughter of British publishing tycoon Robert Maxwell and sister of Ghislaine Maxwell. CEO Paul McOwen was co-creator of the National Science Foundation's Research Center for Text Retrieval and Analysis. A chief technology officer, Howard Tuttle, designed a legal retrieval system for West Publishing that has won kudos for its ability to perform contextual searches of terabyte-level databases. Two of those players, McOwen and Tuttle, and a third individual, William Bruce Croft, have long and convoluted careers in business and technology and an intimate knowledge of how to extract taxpayer money from government agencies. Journalist Amy Zuckerman said that Paul McOwen started his adult life involved in social service programs to build housing and develop mass transit for the elderly. But after he and his wife spent seven years without electricity, disdainful of money in the establishment and filling others' pain, I suppose. He got smart and serious about improving his situation. McOwen went to the University of Massachusetts to study computer science and engineering, where he completed a master's degree and became a department administrator. During the period 1987 to 1995, McOwen attracted to the university $27 million from the state and from the National Science Foundation. In 1988, McOwen founded the Applied Computing Systems Institute of Massachusetts, a nonprofit research foundation which takes technology developed by the university and brings it to market. McOwen then establishes the Center for Intelligent Information Retrieval with faculty member Bruce Croft. According to the Center's website, the Center for Intelligent Information Retrieval develops tools that provide effective and efficient access to large, heterogeneous, distributed text and multimedia databases, Working together, Center for Intelligent Information Retrieval and Applied Computing Systems Institute of Massachusetts created a hot new search engine called Inquiry. It was Howard Tuttle who had the bright idea for Inquiry. As Warren Grief explained in a 1996 paper, the search engine of the Inquiry system is based on the use of inference networks as developed in Howard Tuttle's doctoral dissertation. Tuttle had previously collaborated with Croft to publish a retrieval model for incorporating hypertext links in 1989. Efficient probabilistic interference for text retrieval in 1991 and Retrieval Strategies for Hypertext in 1993. Among other papers, he and Croft would continue to publish work jointly for years. So, the three men knew each other well, McOwen, Croft, and Turtle. McOwen, especially as an administrator and funding hound, was able to initiate and coordinate the activities of various programs, students, and faculty In 1996, McOwen and Croft start Sovereign Hill, a for-profit company to promote inquiry. McOwen leaves the university to dedicate himself fully to the new venture. Now pay attention, folks. This is how socialist fascism works. 
citing again the Center for Intelligent Information Retrieval website, which from here on out I will refer to as CIIR. The technology transfer mechanism is simple and effective. As soon as some technology is developed in the center, which appears to have commercial potential, the commercialization rights to that particular technology are routinely transferred by the university. This streamlined mechanism allows very rapid development of commercial documentation, licensing of new technology, incorporation of new startups and joint ventures, and financing investment of new commercialization enterprises. All government and industry members benefit immediately from new releases of software with new or advanced features or performance. The creation of Sovereign Hill Software, Inc. is just one example of the CIIR's successes. Sovereign Hill Software, a Massachusetts startup company and CIIR member, was created to commercialize the inquiry retrieval engine and related information retrieval software created within the CIIR. Then, in 1999, Sovereign Hill is sold for $4 million. So together with other stakeholders in the community, McOwen and Croft set up a center and a research foundation through a public university whose infrastructure and principal operating expenses are publicly funded and which use mostly student research and labor to develop a marketable technology, with said technology being transferred to their private company, which they then sell for $4 million. Sweet. But the show isn't over, folks. These boys were just getting started. McOwen and Croft continued harvesting big clients, such as the Library of Congress and Department of Defense with their search engines, knowledge management systems, and security software. I say harvesting because, in fact, they had already been cultivating these and other fat cats for quite some time as part of the Government Information Locator Service, an effort to identify, locate, and describe federal information resources, including electronic information resources. The Government Information Locator Service, otherwise known as the GILS profile, was first stabilized and approved through the standards process in 1994. A second version was approved in 1997, but the changes were largely confined to extending and refining the available elements and their semantics. GILS initiatives take many forms. Among the most common are those dealing with public access to government information, including spatial map data and information resources. Here is a partial list of such initiatives. United States National Initiatives, Library of Congress, Defense Link, GILS Acknowledgements, a partial list of people who have contributed to the development and success of Government Information Locator Service, which is also known as GILS, University of Massachusetts Center for Intelligent Information Retrieval, Bruce Croft, Paul McOwen, Howard Turtle, also stayed busy. 
He received his doctorate in computer science in 1991 and went to work for West Publishing, a major supplier of federal and state legal reference materials, which at the time was expanding into the electronic media market. Turtle developed West's famous Win document management software and company sales boomed. While still employed by West as their chief scientist in 1997, Turtle helped organize the 6th Annual Text Retrieval Conference, sponsored by the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, otherwise known as DARPA. It's disconcerting to find a major publisher of U.S. law snuggling up to the military. Turtle spoke in 1999 as part of a series on computational linguistics at the University of Maryland Institute for Advanced Computer Studies, also sponsored by the Department of Defense. He has been involved in many other such programs, As a recognized expert in electronic information management, Dr. Turtle has actively participated in various academic and professional organizations relating to computer technology and standards and is often called on to organize events and speak publicly. In the late 1990s, Turtle starts Cogatech, a technical the consulting firm, and it specialized in information retrieval system design and evaluation. Cogatech was represented at a number of the events and continues to be associated with UMass CIIR today. We see that approaching the new millennium. There were these three well-entrenched, bureaucratically savvy techno-champs tightly woven in a stroke-me-stroke-you relationship with the federal government generally and the Department of Defense specifically. Paul McEwen, Bruce Croft, and Howard Turtle were set to become the darlings of the U.S. government's information management community. The secret information management community that would track and eventually control hundreds of millions, soon billions of records on persons of interest, virtually everybody. The secret information management community that would be needed to assist American law enforcement and government apparatus in merging us relatively peacefully without too much kicking and screaming into the coming global village where really smart people would control all aspects of our lives for our own good and Big Brother would pour milk and spread honey in fair proportion to all. Of course, those really smart people with so many decisions to make and problems to solve might need more things than we other lucky fools, oh souls. You wouldn't want to deprive the really smart people of the resources they might need to live comfortably and do their jobs in guiding us, would you? No, of course not, but I digress. All that was needed now was a plausible cover for their really smart people's work. A front operation of sorts. Enter Christine Maxwell's stage way left. Christine is the sister of the infamous Ghislaine Maxwell and one of many siblings of Robert Maxwell, the controversial British publisher who died mysteriously in 1991 heavily in debt. 
I won't go into the details here about Robert Maxwell other than to say he was born in Czechoslovakia as Jan Ludwig Hook. Christine Maxwell was afforded a comfortable upbringing, but when time for came for college, she was <laughs> found that she wasn't qualified academically, so she asked her dad to send her to Pitzer College in Southern California for sociology and Latin American studies. Over the years since then, she has complemented that training by repeatedly visiting and speaking at events in Mexico and Latin America where she practices her Spanish. Maxwell also spent a number of years as a trustee on the board of directors of the Santa Fe Institute, a research and education center in New Mexico. She has a teaching credential from Lady Spencer Churchill College of Education, Oxford, England, Maxwell began her professional life teaching and developing educational materials. She has served on numerous academic, philanthropic, and business boards over three decades, two of those organizations being Pergamon Press and Macmillan Publishing, owned by her father. She has published some papers of note and has made numerous presentations internationally. She currently belongs to or heads many organizations, both for-profit and non-profit, and her schedule continues to be hectic. These obligations pull her across the globe frequently. Christine Maxwell is a very busy lady. Maxwell became infatuated with the Internet and electronic data management, eventually joining the board of the Internet Society in 1997, where she played various leadership roles until leaving in 2002 to dedicate more time to her other interests. She co-founded the Magellan Online Directory in 1993, a successful international search engine and directory site. She also launched one of the first internet yellow pages ever to appear in print, the original new writer's official internet yellow pages in 1994. Chiliad Publishing was started at least as early as 1995 and grew moderately. It has had offices in London, Germany, Brazil, France, and the U.S., the consummate entrepreneur, Christine Maxwell, has taught, traded, or bought her way into advantageous deals, companies, and organizations since her father's death and the loss of the family fortune in 1991. She is married to a French astronomer with whom she has three children, and she splits her residential time between France and California, depending on her activities. Okay. So, now you have a biographical sketch of Christine Maxwell, something of a rich kid made good success story to all appearances. Keeping in mind the need for reasonable cover. In this globalist-leaning secret information management community, we see that she was perfect for the role she'd be playing, the perfect face mask to put on the domestic information gathering and control program soon to be launched. I conjecture that Paul McEwen, fresh from selling Sovereign Hill in 1999, made known through various channels that he was looking for partners to form an information management software venture that would take the field to a new level in terms of processing volume, accuracy, and holistic intuitiveness. And Maxwell, ever searching for and ready to make a deal, answered that call, proposing the use of her existing backburner company, 
Chiliad Publishing as a starting point. Chiliad was presented to the public in 2000 as a great new search engine for shoppers. The tiny firm had arranged multi-million dollar investment and working relationships with Hewlett-Packard and Cisco Systems. Quite an accomplishment. Highlighted in the press were the company's key officers, Christine Maxwell, Paul McOwen, and Howard Turtle, who together had tremendous experience in the fields of database management, information retrieval, and consumer-oriented software. With so much going for it, one would think Chilea would take off soaring. But as the recession progressed in 2001 and 2, the commercial side of the operation faltered, along with other dot-coms during that period. By late 2002, it was clear that the firm could not survive to fulfill its original mission without some significant move to protect it financially from low sales. A partnership was established with Xenia, formerly VideoServe late in 2002. Xenia was already established as a federal government information technology provider. The company's collaboration platform, InfoWorkspace, had been acquired from General Dynamics and allowed distant users to work together online. At the time of the partnership's formation, Xenia was at a financial low and was looking for a ladder to climb out of its hole. Integrating Chiliad's real-time knowledge search discovery and content analysis engine with InfoWorkspace would result in a truly smart and useful application. And then Xenia Chiliad team would be able to sweep aside all competitors, and they did. Within a year, many lucrative defense contracts were obtained. The number and value of these contracts and others have increased substantially since then. You may be wondering where the Bruce Croft character went in the saga. Well, he didn't go anywhere. He was and is still there at UMass and CIIR, cranking out student brains and labor in support of various industry sponsors like Chiliad. It is interesting how the FBI proudly described the software system it was setting up with Chiliad in 2003 as a top-secret sensitive compartmentalized information system. So it seems the FBI, the DOD, and heck, maybe even the Library of Congress, among others, are now able to spy on us pretty well in real time, harvesting our private messages. But isn't that what they're supposed to do? I mean, after all, there might be a terrorist or two that snuck over the southern border, you know, that wide, unguarded, open southern border of ours and mingled in with us, other 300 million average Joes. Let's take another look at Christine Maxwell, international woman extraordinaire, shall we? When she applied for a position on the Board of Trustees of the Internet Society in 1997, Maxwell offered a brief resume and position statement in which she affirms her international character and intent to engage the world community in the work of the organization, which work includes acting as a facilitator and coordinator of Internet-related initiatives around the world, including public policy and trade activities, education and social issues, and the globalization process for targeted populations. 
When interviewed by Mark Stokes in 1998, Maxwell speaks of the educating, enlightening, and empowering effects that the Internet can have on individuals, communities, and whole societies, which is true enough. She also indicates her preference for a worldview to guide young minds in this endeavor. During our conversation, I. Stokes commented on the breadth of her reach globally by indicating that she seems to be a world citizen rather than one tied to a specific city or country. This is the essence of a new perspective of women via the Internet. It is true that I feel I don't belong to any particular country, she says. I do feel like a global citizen. I think women have a particularly important role to play as they rear young children into the new millennium. I believe that as geographic frontiers become less relevant and as we find that becoming citizens of the world means something to more and more people, women and all parents must learn how to educate their children in what it means to live locally and act globally. It's more than just words. We are only just beginning to understand what global citizenship is all about, and the Internet is fundamental to our ability to achieve a better and more effective understanding of our individual and collective role in this highly networked world. Maxwell's biggest platform for these views came through UNESCO the United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization. UNESCO is the UN organization that Ronald Reagan withdrew us from because it promotes anti-Americanism in various insidious ways. Sadly, GW made us rejoin UNESCO in 2003. Approaching a major collaborative presentation of work to UNESCO on behalf of the Internet Society, Maxwell exchanges email with Takeshi Yutsumi of the Global University System and New NYC's Columbia University in the summer of 2000. She was trading ideas relating to the compilation she was editing. It's interesting that she chose Utsumi. He and John McLeod of the San Diego Supercomputer Center at USCSD were involved in global peace gaming simulations to help decision makers construct a globally distributed decision support system for positive some win-win alternatives to conflict and war. The idea involves interconnecting experts in many countries via global internet to collaborate in discovering new solutions for world crises, such as the deteriorating ecology of our globe, and to explore new alternatives for a world order capable of addressing the problems and opportunities of an interdependent globe. In her communication with Utsumi, Maxwell especially wants to know his thoughts on internet regulation, taxation, and preferential treatment for certain institutions. As part of his response, Utsumi explains, We are extending this principle 
to sharing of information and knowledge of the egalitarian global society of the 21st century with our global university system with global broadband wireless and satellite private virtual internet network, which is to be funded by the Global Service Trust Fund. Maxwell then presents global trends that will impact universal access to information resources to UNESCO in July of 2000. It is a long document running many pages and representing work from a number of international contributors. Besides editing and writing the paper, Maxwell is directly responsible for the material found in about a third of the text, particularly those parts covering challenges to universal access to information resources and the role and responsibilities of the public sector. She is most concerned with establishing and enforcing standards of access to information technology worldwide, with special emphasis on ensuring that the handicapped and population areas still dependent on low bandwidth are included. She also promotes web content representative of local cultural groups and languages. Maxwell suggests that UNESCO and other existing international organizations serve as standard bearers for the coordination, regulation, and implementation of these efforts. All of Maxwell's proposals are laudable to a degree. What is worrisome would be their enforcement in practice. Reading between the lines and remembering the background of the contributors and host organization, it is clear that what is at issue really is not just universal access to information technology, it's global multiculturalism. Throughout the document, there are references to establishing standardized educational practices and curricula, a concern over sustainability generally, and loathing for those damn environmentally unsustainable consumer products specifically. The key problems of how to tax internet transactions, like they need to be taxed, arising from jurisdictional confusion. Oh, here's a chance for world government to shine. World Bank-funded and UN-directed infrastructure projects And there, where will that money come from? One wonders. All of these social matters and economic activities and more to be regulated by supranational organizations not directly answerable to the billions of people which would be affected. That's government without representation. When was the last time you voted at the U.N.? So, this then is the woman Paul McEwen partnered with to form a spy-ready New World Order version of Chiliad Incorporated for the 21st century. The Maxwell McEwen et al. Chiliad didn't actually open its doors for regular commercial business until the spring of 2001, about the time the economy was beginning to slip. As mentioned before, the need to broaden the clientele soon manifested, and so a deal was made with Izinia to produce an integrated killer application. Lucrative defense contracts began to infuse new life into both companies. 
According to governmentcontracts1.com, Chile adds gross revenue in 2001 from the Department of Defense, just one of their federal clients, was $124,000, a modest enough sum in government budgeting circles. But look again at the data. There's an interesting detail. The federal government's fiscal year starts in October. That $124,000 refers to fiscal year 02 from October 2001 to September 2002. Department and agency budgets are hammered out in the summer, months before a fiscal year starts. Letters of intent, agreements, and contracts are done in that time frame, too. I submit to you that Chiliad Publishing, Inc. already had a Department of Defense deal in hand prior to the attacks of September 11, 2001. I further submit to you that the FBI or some similar soon-to-be-created entity like, oh, what shall we call it, say Homeland Security? was expected to reap the benefits of that information management technology developed under DOD contract when the time was right. Christine Maxwell continued on the board of the Internet Society until 2002, where, among other things, she cheerfully celebrated the ISOC being designated a non-governmental organization and moderated part of a major UNESCO event. InfoEthics 2000. She is no longer the chairman at Chiliad, but is still on the board. There are tremendous socio-political forces at work in the world today. There are people foreign and domestic who would reshape our nation into something not based on the traditional values which made it great and redirect its course towards subordination and unaccountable rulers. These people are convinced that they are working for a higher goal and the betterment of mankind. They believe deep down in their hearts that they know more than the rest of us and so have both the right and duty to act. But they don't. It is unacceptable that individuals, companies, or other entities not truly interested in preserving our nation and its heritage be placed in charge of our security that such lackeys of a new world order have the tools to spy on us and thereby eventually control us is wrong. We American citizens should carefully consider our privacy and liberty in relation to our security and welfare. History shows that totalitarian regimes with time invariably fail their subjects spiritually and materially, the only way to bequeath wholesome prosperity to our children is to ensure it in the present. Such effort must come from within. We should choose freedom, knowing that terrible adversity and horrific attacks will befall us occasionally, but preferring not to live between times as beaten, whimpering dogs. <laughs>